over the last uh, six weeks here, seven weeks, we've been going through uh, a fall campaign looking at this idea of discipleship, of growth, spiritual growth uh, in, in ourselves and in the people sitting around us here in this church. And we've been using this model from a book called Four Chair Discipleship by Dan Spader, who's the founder of Sun Life Ministries. And he took the four calls of Jesus on the disciples who would follow him, and he, he took those and kind of put them into four sections to help us understand, okay, so what did he call, why did he call, and when did he call? And so we, we a couple weeks ago, talked about chair number one over here, which is the come and see chair. This is the chair of someone who doesn't yet know Christ, but they're, they're seeking, they're looking, they're trying to find answers. What is the hope? What is the answer? Where can I find that? And so just as Jesus called the original disciples um, at the very beginning, his, his statement to them was come and see. And I love that one of them was Andrew who went to his brother Peter and said, come and see. And then Philip goes to Nathaniel and says, come and see. It's that call to just come and see. Just come and see why I would say that Jesus is the answer for the hope that you're seeking, for, for the salvation that you're looking for. And, and then we moved, last week we talked about chair two, which is the follow me chair, where Jesus said to Philip, I want you to accompany uh, align and assist me in this. I want you to align yourself to what I'm doing, to the mission, to, to, to what I'm leading out. I want you to come with me and I want you to help me in this. And, and chair two, we got to do a, a quick review on it because it leads us right into chair three. So chair two is a chair of learning. It's, it's where we learn to grow. And, and understand, here's why I would say that. Because from the call of chair two to follow me, to the call of chair three, which is follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. As we look in scripture, there was 18 months between those two calls. A lot of times we read it and go, no, they're the same time. They're not. Here's why I know that. The book of John was structured chronologically around the, uh, the Jewish feasts of, uh, on that calendar. And so what we have is we, we've got this, uh, this thing that John wrote out marking when Jesus went and celebrated these feasts. Now, Jesus, being a, a Jewish male, was required to attend three feasts a year uh, and to go and celebrate these things according to the law of God. And he fulfilled the law, lived this out perfectly. And so we have this, uh, we have this record of it in the book of John where he went and he celebrated Passover. This is their, their celebration of the freedom from Egyptian captivity where they uh, specifically focus on God passing over the houses of those who had marked their doorposts with blood and, and the firstborns of the other houses were all taken as this was the final plague that God sent before Pharaoh finally relented and let God's people go. Then they have the, uh, the Feast of Pentecost where they celebrate the first fruits of their wheat harvest and it's really focused on when the law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. That's what they're celebrating is the giving of the law of God. Then there was the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths which celebrates the fall harvest and, again, their exodus from Egypt. This is what they're focusing on in these things. And every Jewish male was required to attend and participate in these things. So Jesus, uh, we, we have John marking down that when Jesus went and did these things, and we have the calendar of those events, so we get to see the timeline. That's why I love the book of John, because you can take it and lay it out and put all, the other, all three other gospels over it and see kind of a chronological look at the ministry of Christ. It's an incredible thing to see. We call that a harmony of the Gospels. And you can actually get those. They have them uh, written out, printed out for you to be able to read it through kind of in chronological order. But it helps us to see these calls. And, and that idea of going 18 months from follow me to follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. We see that there was a lot to do in that chair too. A lot for them to learn. And I want you to think about it. These guys were learning from Jesus. They're with the disciple maker himself, and they're taking 18 months 
to learn these things. Now, there was some action. There were some things that they got to be involved in and part of, uh, but there was a lot more learning through conversation, through questioning, through observance. They watched Jesus and how he interacted with people. They, they listened to what he taught. They, they watched him as he performed these signs and wonders. They watched him as he healed people, and they heard what he said, and they would sit down. They'd ask him questions. As they journeyed together, they would talk to him and, and wonder about things, and they'd learn from him on these things, and they spent this time So we go from chair two, which is a chair, like I said, where we learn, to chair three, which is the chair where we implement. We start taking what we've learned, and we're going to apply it and start walking in it. When we step into chair three, the call on us changes. In chair two, just a review from last week, we've learned how to feed ourselves with pure spiritual food, how to walk like Jesus in purity, speech, and action. We've learned how to talk and articulate the gospel and our testimony, how to clean ourselves from sin through confession and through battling temptation. And then we've learned our identity of who we are in Christ. We're starting to grasp that a little more in chair two. This is a a big list. And the interesting thing is this. In chair two, we are learning how, not mastering it. I think of, of just Peter. We could go through any of the apostles, but just Peter, we get this wonderful picture. On day one, he, is not, he doesn't understand this stuff. When Jesus ascends into heaven, Peter still doesn't understand this stuff. He's still been called, though, to step to chair three, to step to chair four. Jesus has called him to fish for men and to go and bear fruit. It's not because he's mastered these things. But it's because that's not the point. The point is to be growing, to be learning, to be applying and walking in these. It's not that in chair two I have to master all of this. I just need to start understanding this and growing in it and striving, stepping out in it, starting to learn this. Now here's here's the issue though is some of you are sitting here in chair two with full understanding of how to do this and yet there's no growth. So why is that? I can tell you why. I know why it is. It's because chair three is really uncomfortable. It is so uncomfortable. Last week I talked to you about how chair two, you know, from chair one to chair two, this is somebody coming from, from, as Ephesians puts it, from death to life, from being separated from God to being brought back into a restored relationship with him through Christ. Jesus does all of that work. It's an easy move from chair one to chair two because all it is is about me putting my faith in Jesus and him alone, his death, his resurrection on my behalf, knowing that I am saved through him alone, and I move from chair one to chair two. Chair two is super comfortable because there I'm safe, I'm secured. I now have inherited uh, all of the blessings of the heavenly realms and it's sealed and guaranteed to me by the spirit of God as Ephesians two puts it. So I am, I am now locked in, I'm safe, I'm secure, I'm saved. And it's comfortable. Like I said last week, chair two would be better represented by a lazy boy recliner being up here. Because it's, it's this real comfortable place to be. And then as you look over, chair three and chair four are much more, at, they're on an incline to get to. There's some work, there's some structure that has to be laid down. There's some stuff that we have to work on to, to get there. And we don't like that. It's difficult. We start heading up that direction. and We go, okay, I've got my lazy boy here. What is this next chair gonna be? We start working towards it. Notice that it's this old hard stool made of solid wood with cracks all over it. It's not comfortable. Anybody who's sat in one of those for longer than 10 minutes knows afterwards you don't need a tailbone anymore. It should just be removed. It's horrible, right? It's not comfortable. And so here's the thing is as we're heading that direction, we see, uh, I'm not so sure about this. And we just sit on that slope, slide down, and sit right back in our comfy chair. That's what we like to do. It's why in the church today we do not often see people that are actually chair three or chair four. But we should. And we can. 
but it's, it's going to take a willingness, and I'm going to be real with you today on what chair three looks like, and I, I'm just going to tell you, I, <laughs> it's not going to sell really well, but it's the reality, and we've got to wake up to it, and we've got to see what the call is. Chair three, why is it so uncomfortable? Okay, for us to understand this, we have to look at the actual call that's there. So you could look in Matthew 4 and Mark 1 or in Luke 5. All of them give us this call, but we're going to look in Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 1, to help us see kind of the full picture of what was going on when Jesus called these guys to become fishers of men, all right? So Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 1. One day, as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, now go out where it is deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. Master, Simon replied, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. And this time their nets were so full of fish, they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners out in the other boat, and soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh Lord, please leave me. I am such a sinful man. For he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as were the others with him. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. Jesus replied to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you'll be fishing for people. As soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. I love this call on Peter to, to fish for men. What a, what a fitting call for him, a fisherman. And, and here's, here's the thing is, when he's going out, you've got to understand what, it, what just happened here. We read this and we're like, oh, Peter just trusted Jesus and went for it. No, here's what Peter did. He said, nothing's going to happen if we go out there, but because you're asking me to, fine, we'll do it. His faith wasn't really in his attitude. His faith was in his actions. And he, in faith, let down the net, saying, if you say so, I'll do it. Even though, I, I've already told you, we worked all night. There's no fish over here. They're definitely not out in the deep right now. That's not where the fish sit. So, fine, let me just prove it to you. I'll show you. You say so, I'm lowering the net. They go out in a boat that's about 25, 27 feet long, about seven feet wide and four feet deep. It's meant to hold uh, five guys at most and a thousand pounds of fish. That's what it can hold before it sinks. So they, they get out there in this boat. They lower the net in one spot. They make this kind of U movement with it. And, and then they would start pulling the net in to close it off. And as they start pulling it, the net is ripping because of the amount of fish. They call for the other boat. They have over a ton of fish in this net. That doesn't happen. They normally spend all night catching their thousand pounds to get a ton of fish in a single net. That doesn't happen. They're amazed. They're shocked. And I love it because Peter in faith lowered the net there. And then in the book of Acts, we get to see Peter in faith lower the net again as he stands up on the day of Pentecost. This is the first time we see Peter standing up. He's not very good at, at, at his preaching. I know it's real clear the way it's written out, but you got to understand, here's why I say that. First thing Peter says when he stands up is this. We're not drunk. It's nine in the morning. That's what he says. That's how he starts his sermon. I'm like, okay. Like, but it's, he, he doesn't start well, but that day he lowered the net in faith and 3,000 people put their faith in Christ. Pulls in the net. So I love this. He goes, you see this, this picture of him going from fishing for fish to fishing for people. And it's an incredible thing to see. And we're going to look at how that happens, how that goes. To understand this call more fully, we've got to see what they went to do right after it. 
Uh, This is right after John the Baptist has been arrested. He's been preparing the way for the Messiah. Now he's been arrested. He's in jail, and Jesus' ministry shifts gears. He, at first, was doing ministry kind of alone, and it was a very short time up to his baptism, and then his temptation in the wilderness, he's alone. He's by himself, but when he comes back, he starts calling disciples to follow him. This is chair two. Now, he, he says, I want you to come follow me, and I want you to watch while I do the ministry. For 18 months, watch and learn. Watch and see. Let me model this for you. And then he calls his disciples to do the ministry while he watches. You see a shift in how things are written at this point, where it'll say, Jesus then sent them out on these mission trips to go and prepare these towns that he was going to come to, to go and share the truth of who he was. He starts sending them out instead of leading them out. It's, it's awesome to see. There's even times that it says, and Jesus went here and they were baptizing people. Jesus himself was not baptizing anyone. His disciples were while he watched. See, he's sitting back and he's letting them do the ministry that he was initially doing. He's trained them and now he's letting them. He's moving from the position of quarterback to the position of coach. And he's letting them run some plays. And he's there. He's teaching them. He's saying, yeah, yeah, this is what you need to do. Yep, just like we were doing, just like I showed you. This is exactly what it is. He's there. He's answering questions. He's helping. And it's amazing to see him discipling the disciples. It's awesome to see this happen. No more practice. It's time to play. This is the call of chair three. The call to start doing instead of just learning. But before they played, they did practice. Before they jumped in, they, they practiced. Some of us want to skip steps in our spiritual growth. We want, to, we want to just go right to the place that we're wanting to get to. And, and while it would be nice, we cannot genuinely grow in Christ without following what he's called us to do. And there is wisdom and reason for it all, and it's worth it. I promise you, the source of that wisdom, the source of that, that reason is way more trustworthy than my wisdom on it. So I'm going to trust that. But let's think about this idea of practice. Did you know the average high school student spend six to eight hours a week in practice for a sport. Six to eight hours a week in practice for a sport. And, and we justify that time easily because we love watching, we love playing. We can justify these things, right? And we see it lived out on the field or on the court. So they spend six to eight hours a week in practice for a 40 to 60 minute game. On average, they will play 15 to 20 minutes a week in that game. So they're spending six to eight hours a week in practice for 15 to 20 minutes of performance. And again, we justify this time with hopes of scholarship, success, fitness, and fun. We, we justify it. And while I feel like our priorities may be way off, that's a sermon for another time. So I'll save that, okay? But our practices, we understand this concept that practice takes a while, Practice takes a while. We, we need to realize this principle applies to our spiritual life. Sometimes it takes a while to learn a needed skill or to unlearn a damaging one, to unlearn one that we've been, we've been convinced of that's not actually true. Don't get frustrated, though, but realize that God in his infinite wisdom and in his love for you is going to bring about his best plan in his perfect timing. I cannot tell you how often people come to me and say, I am so frustrated I've been doing everything right, and I'm not growing. I don't understand it. I've been doing everything the way I'm supposed to. I've been spending time in the Word. I've been spending time in prayer. I've been showing up at church. I'm serving in this. I'm doing all this, and I don't feel like I'm growing. And and I understand that frustration, but we need to trust His timing. We need to trust His 
plan, and it will be worth it. We walk in faith in his promises and trust in his wisdom. So, so what does that practice look like, just to help you with this? I think back to uh, when I was in, uh, in high school and playing basketball, and when we, at the beginning of every practice, we would run layup lines, right? Where we'd go, you'd start practice by running your right-handed layups, and then you'd go do your left-handed layups, and we, we had this whole drill that we'd go through before practice actually started. It was like a practice for our practice, right? And so, I think about this when it comes to like these chairs here. This is why I love the four chair model is it gives us next steps, things that we need to be working on. It kind of gives us layup lines of things that we need to be running through and working on and practicing, starting to get the form down on these things. And so we're going to go through a list here of these chair two layup lines into chair three calls, all right? Uh, now, you may have gotten to hear some of these things if you've been in the Disciple Makers core class and you've gone through and taken the four chair quiz to see what chair you're in. These are pulled right out of that. If you haven't had a chance to do that and you don't have the app to do it or whatever, out on the table between the doors on your way out, there's some paper versions of it that you can take and it's got these things. It's not a checklist of if I'm being a good Christian. It's a way to start looking saying, okay, where am I at and what are my next steps? How do I start growing? Where do I need to focus? Have my, has my focus been off on other things? What is important in this? And I love it because these are pulled directly out of what Jesus trained and taught the disciples to do and how he raised them up. So we're going to start with chair two, these layup lines of, of what we need to be working on. I'm developing in the character of Christ. Galatians 5, through 23 shows us what that looks like. It's the fruit of the Spirit, right? Uh, the next one, I'm developing in the priorities of Christ. Matthew 22, 37 through 39, where Jesus says, uh, the greatest commandment is this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second, which is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. So he's saying this, okay, my priorities are this, to love God and to love people. And I'm, I'm starting to develop those priorities in my life. The next one, I recognize Christ as Lord and seek to put him first in every area of my life. In, our, in my time, my money, my relationships. This is what we tend to do. We like to live priority list lives. We've got priorities. We've got things that, that are important to us, and we put them on this list, and, and our life will reflect what's on that list. So here's what we tend to do in the church is we say, well, God needs to be the top of that list. This is the problem is God doesn't need to be the top of that list. God needs to be the list. He needs to be what you're putting the list on. He's the filter through which your list is written. That's how it works. If I'm going to deny myself and follow Christ, it means that I'm going to filter what I do, what I put on that list through my relationship with him and decide, does it go on the list or not? Now, some of you are looking and saying, but that would change my whole list. Exactly. That's the point. Because our identity is changed in Christ, right? And we're called to follow him. And this means that I need to start looking at things differently. Start realizing that he purchased me with a high price. And now my time is his time if I truly, truly want to follow him. And that's okay because his plan's better than mine anyways. We learn that we're growing in that. I am dependent on God's spirit for strength and direction in my everyday life. I spend time with God each day by reading his word and talking to him through prayer. I know my spiritual gifts and I look for ways to use them in serving others. I am concerned for those who don't know Jesus and want to share him with them. These are the things that chair two believers begin to learn and apply in their life in order to follow Christ and continue to grow. Now, I know this, this list, you may look at it and say, there's like three or four of those that I am not doing well in. Like, I, I don't even do any of those things. And, and so here's the thing. Instead of getting frustrated and going, well, that's just not fair. I thought I was further. Slow down. 
look at it and go, okay, what do I need to be working on? I remember the first time a couple, it was probably six, seven years ago that I went through this four chair list and I started looking at what it was and I scored higher in chair three than chair two because I had prioritized things that I thought would bear fruit without laying the foundation of what the fruit would be grown in. And I wasn't seeing fruit in my ministry even though I was applying all of these great things because I had, I had neglected the importance of growing in my own faith that I had to have this foundation of my connection with Christ and, and it's important. So I just want to challenge you, don't get frustrated. Open your eyes and go, okay, what's next? What do I need to be working on? What are the areas that I need to be growing in? See, chair three's list reflects the call of Jesus that we've seen here to fish for men. It starts like this. The first one is this. I pursue relationships with spiritually lost people and pray for their salvation. I know how to communicate my salvation story, my testimony. I know how to share the gospel message simply and clearly in two minutes. Now, some people look and say, whoa, 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 two minutes? How are you supposed to get through the gospel in two minutes? Here's the thing. The gospel is simple. When Paul first was preaching it, here's what he says. When I came to you, I preached Christ and him crucified. That was it. No lofty words, no big speeches, no, no I, Christ and him crucified. It's simple. The gospel is simple. And here's the truth. We often don't have very long to share it when an opportunity comes up. So learning it in a way that I, can, I could share it in two minutes, I can share it in 10 minutes, I can share it in 10 years. I, I need to be able to do all of this. I need to be working on this. I use tools like my shirt here. This is what we use with our students to teach them. It's called Life in Six Words. God created us to be with him, but our sins have separated us from God. Sins cannot be removed by good deeds, so paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again. Now everyone who trusts in him alone has eternal life, and life with Jesus starts now and lasts forever. There's the whole gospel. It's simple. It's quick. It's easy. Yes, I can break down each point, and I can give you scripture, and I can spend hours talking to you about them. Or I can share simply the message of the gospel. I'm prepared. I'm ready. This is why it's important for us to know it well to be able to articulate that. I look for and act upon opportunities to share the gospel message verbally and or verbally with spiritually lost people. There was a quote that's become very popular in the church, and yet it was falsely attributed to one of the early church fathers. Here's the quote, okay? Preach the gospel when necessary, use words. Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. We like this. You know why? Because it means that we can say, I'll just live as a good person. People will see that, and they'll know it's because of Jesus. If you open up your phone right now and start scrolling through uh, the trending videos, I guarantee you in the top 10, you're going to find at least one video that is someone doing a good deed for someone else. Someone proving that there's still good people left in the world. Romans tells us that's not true, but this is our world that we're in right now is there's tons of people doing good things and none of it points to Jesus. So we gotta open up our eyes and open up our mouths and start realizing that we are called to share the message of the gospel, not just live it. Yes, we should be living lives that reflect that message. I love what Greg Steer, the founder of Dare to Share Ministries, has done with this quote. He says, if it's falsely attributed, I'm not offending anyone by changing it. So here's what he did. He took it and he wrote it out differently. He said, preach the gospel, period. It's necessary, comma, use words, <laughs> exclamation point. Because we need to wake up and realize people aren't gonna just know Jesus by watching how you live. Some of you are going, they're definitely not going to by watching how I live. We need to work on that. 
But we, we've got to understand, we're called to preach the gospel, not just live it. They go hand in hand. I pursue discipling relationships with other believers and pray for their growth into Christ-likeness. I know the basics that a new believer needs to understand to grow in their faith, and I share what God is teaching me with others to encourage them in their faith. Chair three is referred to as the worker for a reason, right? We go from all of this looking at at how we can grow, how we can start reflecting and aligning ourselves with Christ to now we're doing it. Let's get moving. Let's get going. We're going to work. We, we go from following Jesus to joining him in this chair. We join him in the incredible work of reaching the lost, of raising up young believers, making clear and loud the good news, praying for the lost to be saved and the saints to be sanctified. It's an exciting thing to be a part of. I can tell you there's not much more exciting in this world. In fact, I don't know if I can think of anything more exciting than getting to watch someone move from death to life and start walking in their faith in Christ. It is an incredible thing. This This week, I had the opportunity on Wednesday night to lead three young men to Christ and to get to partner them in with another student who's going to be discipling them on a weekly basis and start seeing them take these steps. The next day, I got to sit with a young woman and talk to her as she's frustrated that she's not growing from chair two to chair three. And she's going, this is just ridiculous. I don't know why I'm not growing. I'm doing everything right, and I'm going, slow down. It's okay. Here's the growth that I'm seeing in you that you're not seeing, but be patient. It will be worth it getting to pour into her and encourage and earlier that day I sat down with some men from the church here who here's their heart they went we have lost people in our lives and we want to know how are we going to do this how do we start reaching them and so we sat and spent some time praying and planning on how they can start reaching them and drawing them in all I can tell you is this I'm fueled up this week I'm excited because I got to be part of what God had called me to do this week. And it was exciting to be part of it and to see that joy in it. We join Jesus in the incredible work that he has called us to follow him in. But we also join him in something else. Remember how I said that chair three is uncomfortable? That's because we also join Christ in his suffering. This is the hard part for us. Romans 6 through 8 gives us this incredible picture of what chair three looks like. It's where we begin living life in the spirit rather than in the flesh. We've been working towards that in chair two, and and it can be quite frustrating. Paul shared in these frustrations. We see him in in Romans chapter seven. He, He says, I, 29 times in reference to his own efforts, his own efforts to grow himself spiritually. And then in chapter eight, he explains that it is not I, but through God's spirit in me that I will grow through God's spirit in me that I have freedom, hope, and life through God's spirit in me that I have a guaranteed inheritance as a child of God and a co-heir with Christ. But that shared inheritance of God's glory is also combined with Christ's suffering. Romans 8, 16 through 17 says this, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. This is where most of us head out. We slide right back down to that chair and go, no, I'm comfortable here. We didn't sign up for suffering. We didn't plan on this, but here's the thing, we should have. We should have planned on this. Remember last week I brought up how Jesus clearly in Scripture said this. He said, hey, count up the cost before you follow me. Look and see what you might lose, what you will lose. Count it up and see if it's worth it before you follow me because I need you all in or not in at all. You you are all in or you're not. He said, if you're going to follow me, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. 
He made it clear, and the, the early believers understood this, and they didn't shy away from it. I think about Paul and, and all of the things that he suffered. We get this list. He like writes it out, and he's not bragging about it or trying to say, look at me, look at me, but he writes out this list of all the suffering that he has faced. This guy's being beaten with rods. He's received the same lashing that Jesus did with the cat of nine tails 39 times. He, he gets whipped, and then that happens to him three times. He has three different times he's shipwrecked, literally floating a night and day at sea, not sure if he's going to survive, struggling through this. He's been imprisoned. He's been tortured. And so we can look at this guy who's been suffering, and, and we get to see what he writes as he's sitting in prison. In the book of Philippians chapter 3, we get to see how he feels about all this. Starting in verse 10, here's what he says. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Some of you are going, Paul's just a crazy dude. I want to suffer with him and share in his death? What? Here's what Paul's describing. He's describing the the desires, the attitudes, and the realities of chairs one through three here. He says, I want to know Christ. That's chair one. I want to know. I'm seeking. I'm trying to find I'm coming to see what this is about. I want to know if this is it. And then chair two, I want to experience the mighty power that raised Jesus from the dead. I want to, I want to move from death to life. I want to start walking in the spirit and experiencing that power in my life. And then chair three, I want to suffer with him and share in his death. I want to suffer with him no matter what comes, no matter the cost. I'm all in. I'm willing to face anything for the sake of Christ because of what he has faced for me. I'm willing to face anything that the people around me would know the hope that is found in him because he was willing to face that for me. 2 Timothy 3.12, here's what Paul writes to Timothy, a young church leader. He says, yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I'm gonna read that again. And everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So what is this suffering? What does it, it look like? And in the times these verses were written, you have to understand the early church, these guys were being persecuted in major ways. They were being ostracized by their own families from their own communities. They were arrested, beaten, tortured, and even killed. What we don't see this kind of stuff happening in western Nebraska. It's not going on here, but, but we need to wake up and realize something. The church, the body of Christ, worldwide, universal, is being persecuted on a global level. Thousands daily are suffering the same things that the early church suffered in persecution, and, and they're refusing to abandon their faith. See, we're all part of the same body of Christ, but we here in the U.S., we kind of like to think of ourselves as our own body of Christ. We read our own authors. We listen to our own preachers. We consider our own the- theologians to be the top in the world. It's kind of like we have this attitude of saying, well, you know, The rest of the world is suffering and struggling, and it's probably because they just haven't figured out Christianity as well as we have. Sounds horrible, doesn't it? Take a look at the church in the U.S. today, and you're going to see it. Yeah, the rest of the world is suffering, and that's that's too bad. I'm glad God has blessed me here. And we act like we can't feel it. It's like the, the leg of the body of Christ is being sawn off, and over here pretending we can't feel it. That's an issue. We are part of the same body. We should be suffering along with them, feeling that we have to wake up because suffering persecution is a sign that we are living for Christ. 
Hebrews 10 through 12 talks about this in depth. It's this, it's this painful, difficult, hard things that believers willingly faced in order that Christ would be glorified in their unfaltering faith. And I am afraid that somebody's not going to like me if I talk to them about Jesus. I get nervous that I'm going to make them feel uncomfortable if I bring up my faith. I, I avoid doing what I'm freely able to do because of ridicule that might come. The truth is, here's what it is. I live faithless. Most of us do. We don't have faith. We don't live in it, at least. If we lived in our faith, it would look very different. Because I promise you, the same enemy that was at work around the early church and is at work in the rest of the world is at work here, too. And so if we were to stand in our faith and live it out, I guarantee you persecution would rise up. Because that's what happens. But the problem is, is we, we're not living it. And that's an issue. Chair three is where we begin to stand up in our faith and willingly face whatever comes. In doing this, we see something amazing happen. The good news, the gospel is proclaimed boldly. It goes out boldly. Throughout history, we see the greatest times of growth in Christianity are, are tied with the greatest times of persecution for Christians. Because the faith of believers is refined by the fire of persecution. All the extra is burnt away. And what they're left with is they have to stand. It's my own child. That's okay. Don't worry about it. <laughs> what, what we're left with is the foundation that you have to stand on. And here's, here's the thing. 1 Corinthians 3 points out what that foundation is to be. That foundation is to be Jesus Christ. Because when everything else, all the extra is burnt away, all the rest is, is taken away, refined out, we got to have something to stand on, and if our foundation is not Christ, we'll fall. And it happens often. And we've got to wake up and see this. We've got to start understanding that, that faith is, is more important and we are not living it out. We should desire persecution as a sign that we're living lives worthy of the gospel. I think of the apostles in Acts chapter 5 that have been arrested yet again for preaching the gospel. They're brought before the ruling council. Those guys are arguing over what to do with them. They're like, we can't kill them. There's too many people following them. They'll come at us. They'll cause a riot. The Romans will get mad, and they'll take us out of power. We can't do that. What do we do? One guy stands up and says this. Remember this, guys. If it's of God, you can't stop it. But if it's not, it'll die out. So just let them be. They agree with him. Acts 5, verse 40, it says this. The others accepted his advice. They called the apostles and had them flogged. Then they ordered them to never again speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. The apostles left the high council rejoicing that God had counted them worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. All day we've been asking this question, am I willing to suffer? Am I willing to suffer? And chair three is where we go from am I willing to suffer to ask the question of am I worthy to suffer? Am I worthy? Am I living a life worthy of suffering, worthy of persecution? I told you it's an uncomfortable place to be but it is a place that is so worth it. And I wanna, I'm gonna get to why here in just a minute. I think of John Wesley, the, the great preacher, was riding along on his horse one day when he realized that three days had passed since he had last been persecuted. Nobody had thrown an egg at him in three days. And, and so he stopped his horse and said out loud, could it be that I have backslidden or that I have sinned? He climbs off his horse, he gets down on his knee, and he prays out to God, saying, Lord, is there anything wrong with me? Is there something that I have done that goes against you, God, that I have not been living? What's wrong with me spiritually? A man who disliked him, saw him praying, picked up a brick and threw it at him. 
he saw this thing whiz past his face. And he said this, thank you, Lord. I still know now that I have your presence. Okay, I don't know about you, but I don't like when people throw bricks at me. Dodgeballs from our middle schoolers are bad enough, but like the bricks, the idea of that, that's crazy to me. And yet he's looking saying, that's my sign that I'm still living for Christ. So here's the question. When was the last time someone threw a brick at you? When was the last time that you, you faced any kind of persecution? When was it? Think about it. I think about, for me, he's saying three days. I go, okay, over the last three years, how many times have I had a brick thrown at me? Or have I, have I had any kind of persecution for living out my faith? Now, some people look and say, well, we're in the United States, so we have free this. You, know, we, you should be free to do this without persecution. The enemy is here too. I promise you, persecution comes. I know there are people that absolutely hate Christianity and go against it and will fight against it that live in this area. The problem is, is I'm not living in a way that even gets the attention of the enemy. I shared with, with our uh, young adults a couple weeks ago this quote from a missionary back in the day, and, and here was his quote, let, let the enemy throw a thanksgiving feast the day that I die and am no longer fighting the battle here against him. Let him celebrate that day because of the faith that I have lived battling against him. Let him shudder every time I step out my door because he knows I can do nothing against that one and I know what he's going to do against me. I think about that in my life and I go, man, does the enemy, is he gonna celebrate when I'm gone because he no longer has to stand against the faith that I have in Christ? I don't know, but I would love for that to be the case. We've been studying the Beatitudes as a church, going through this in our life groups. Matthew 5, 10 through 12, here's one of them. It says this, God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you're my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. I want to read this part to you again because I've got to clarify something. It says, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you. We like to stop there. Because we go, see, this person was gossiping about me today. I know this person doesn't like me. This person was saying things about me the other day. God's going to bless me for that. We like that. But you need to understand something in this. This is not saying God blesses you when you're a jerk and people don't like you. That's not what it's saying, okay? This is clear here. And the only reason I bring this up, it's not a joke. I've actually had people bring up this verse telling me that, that they're going to be blessed when you can clearly see the only reason people are against them is because they've been living horribly, we got to wake up. We are blessed when we face persecution because of the way we've been following Christ. We are to be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. Do you ever think about the rewards in heaven? Do you ever think about it? I, I think we, we focus a lot on our rewards here, on what we can gain here. In our spiritual lives, that's kind of where our focus is. And we got to wake up because Jesus said, store it for yourself treasures in heaven. This is our motivation. This is, this is something that we should be excited about, something that should keep us going, that should keep us moving in the midst of persecution because there's no utopian Christian world coming here, guys. There's not. Our hope is not in this world, and we need to quit acting like it is and live as those that, that the worst thing this world can do to me is send me home. That's what it is. So why, why am I so afraid of losing what this world says is the best it has to offer when I already know what Christ offers is greater? We need to wake up to the reward of that. 
Chair three is where we start finding this blessing. We want chair three to be all about serving in the church, but it's not. We want to say uh, that giving up our time on the weekends to work in children's ministry is suffering for the Lord. People, that's youth group. That's suffering youth ministry. No, I'm kidding. It's not, okay? Serving in the church, this is a, that is not suffering for the Lord. That's a cop-out. That's living faithless. I'm not trying to be rude, but you need to know something. Serving in the church is what we should be doing as part of the church anyways. Scripture's so clear on that. We shouldn't even have to talk about it. It should just be our natural thing. Here's why. If you have your faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God is in you and has gifted you, has gifted you. Every single one of you who has your faith in Christ is gifted. What are those gifts for? We need to learn what our gifting is and see what Scripture says about that gifting. In Romans 12, 1 Peter 4, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4, and other places, it talks about your gifting, and it always says this. Your gifting is for the building up of the body of Christ. So serve. shouldn't even have to talk about it. You should, you should be going, I want to do this. I want to go. We shouldn't be walking into a church this size going, man, we got 30 open slots in our children's ministry. I hope someone fills them. We shouldn't be looking and saying, man, the worship team just has the same people up every week. I guess they just don't like anybody else. That's not the truth. Get involved and serve. There's so much, but that, that's something, that's chair two. See, serving in the ministry, in the church, that's not the suffering, that's the joy. That's where we get to experience that partnership with Christ. And it's easy, and it's fun. And yes, there's little bits of pain in it, but I promise you, it is worth it. Chair three people should already be serving. We should already be working on that. That should already be normal to us that we're getting involved. There are three learning directives. Just like last week, there were learning directives for chair two. For chair three, there are some people. And chair three have gone, according to Jesus in John 15, from no fruit in chair one to fruit in chair two to more fruit in chair three on their way to much fruit in chair four. That's the attitude. And and as those of you in chair three grow, there, there are three main things I want you to learn. You need to grow in this. You must learn to live a spirit-filled life. Doing the work of the ministry in the power of the spirit. Romans 6, Paul talks about how we have died with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Romans 7, he talks about how I am incapable of living up to the law or honoring God in my own strength. But Romans 8, he says, the spirit of God in me is the source of strength, wisdom, and the passion needed to follow Christ. And I cannot bear fruit apart from the spirit of God. This is what we need to learn and grow in, is how to live this spirit-filled life. The next thing we've got to learn is we've got to learn how to deny ourselves, how to put ourselves to the side and, and follow his way. I, I just want to, let me give you a, a picture of this. Every time this year a new directed health measure has come out, this has been the common attitude. It's kind of funny to listen to. Here's what we do. We go, okay, so what category can I put myself in so that I can continue living life as close to what I normally do as possible? We try to twist anything. And I'm not trying to bring it. I'm just telling you, that's our tendency is to rebel. That's what we do. And we look for ways around it. Spiritually, we do the exact same thing. We don't want to deny ourselves. We go, I want to follow Christ, but I want to do it my way. So what way can I twist this a little bit so I'm comfortable? What category can I put myself in so I don't have to do everything that's required? We... In chair two, learn to understand what it means to deny self. And in chair three, we begin to do that. To put his way over mine, his wisdom over mine, his, his timing over mine, his will over mine. To be willing to follow him all the way, even to my death, if that is what he leads me to. I think about a song that was written about seven years ago by an artist named Will Regan. It's a worship song. 
And there's just one line in it that really hits me hard. Because I remember when I first heard it, I had to go back and listen to it again because I was just like, man, do I even understand what that means? And here's what he says. He says, God, I trust your heart and your intentions. And I think about that in hard times in my life, in times and seasons that I've gone through where I've just doubted and wondered what God is doing. And I I have to come back to that. That line pops in my head of, do I trust God's heart and his intentions? He says he wants to work all things together for my good to form me more into the image of Christ. Do I trust that enough to follow him even through this? Do I trust his intentions? That's the challenge. Chair three is where we've grown from our infancy spiritually into spiritual young adulthood. We now fight in the war. It's messy. There's a struggle. There's pain. There's suffering. But we know who's victorious, and we need to stand firm in that and fight. The last thing that a chair three person needs to learn is they need to learn to endure. How? How do we endure suffering? Well, Hebrews 12 answers this for us, starting in verse 2. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people, and then you won't become weary and give up. I think about this. We we are to keep our eyes on Jesus. Now, we, we like to have the nice picture of Jesus that we look at, and we're like, okay, I'll focus on him. But, but what this is saying is, no, have the picture in your mind of what Jesus suffered. Keep your eyes on him. Think of what he suffered at the hands of sinful people. Think of what he suffered because of your sin and what he was willing to endure for you. Keep your eyes on that as you face suffering and decide, am I willing to follow him? Am I going to carry my cross? for the sake of those around me who still need to hear this message because I have hope because of what he's done for me. I need to keep my eyes on him, realizing that God demonstrated his love toward me in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He saw me in my sin, and he suffered that. He said, I want you, and he suffered that. He endured that. Why? Well, it says because of the joy that was awaiting him. What joy? He was going to Jerusalem to be handed over, to be beaten, to be accused, to be mocked, to be spit on, to be uh, whipped, to be hung on a cross and to die. There's no joy in that. So what is this joy? Well, it's the reward that was awaiting him for fulfilling the Father's will. What reward? It's you. That's the beauty of this that he endured the cross, disregarding its shame because he saw you and said, for them I'll do this. For you, I will do this. I will hang on this cross. I will give up my life. I will shed my blood because of you. I'm willing. You are the joy. You are the reward. So here's the question. Are we willing to live lives, not just willing to suffer, but worthy of suffering? as he has suffered on our behalf? Are we willing to take that step and to go? For some of you, you may be hearing and and realizing that you've never put your faith in Christ, that you have not not just suffered, you haven't haven't taken that step from chair one to chair two, you've never trusted in him. And I wanna just invite you today to understand that, that through putting your faith, believing that when Jesus died, it paid the debt that you owe to God for your sin. That when God raised him from the dead, he was accepting that payment on your behalf. And now all you have to do is trust in Jesus and him alone to save you. Trust that his work was enough. 
that God accepted it as enough. If you are willing to do that, to put your faith in him and him alone, not in your baptism, not in your good works, not in your church attendance, just Jesus. It's about what he has done, not about what you do. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is so clear on that. If you are ready to put your faith in Christ, I invite you to do that today by simply just believing. You can express that to the Father. And here's the thing, if you are ready to put your faith in Christ and today you do that, the angels in heaven throw a party, they celebrate, and I want to join with them in that. So come and tell me because I want to come alongside you in this and help you start walking in this to pair you up with somebody who can disciple you and help you to grow. If you're here and you already have your faith in Christ, are you willing to suffer and are you worthy of suffering as Christ suffered for you? Are you worthy of it? Are you living a life that persecution may come? Are we willing to do that and make the most of this amazing opportunity we have where we have low persecution in our country? Are we willing to make the most of this opportunity for the sake of people around us? God, we thank you for today, and I just ask, God, that you would grow us, you would challenge us, you would change us, you would help us to open our eyes, to see what you've called us to, and to be willing, God, to step into it, and then, God, to be living lives worthy of that calling. God, if there's anyone here who has not placed their faith in you, draw them to yourself today. Make today the day of salvation. We praise you, God, for your work, and look forward to the ways that you're going to continue to work in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.